Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. I think there was this idea of, you know, you commute to work. You, you live, you know, maybe in a borough and you commute to Manhattan. You go to your job. It's not the only model anymore. Welcome to the Best New Ideas in Money, a podcast from MarketWatch. I'm Stephanie Kelton. I'm an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. And I'm Charles Passy, a reporter at MarketWatch. Each week, we explore innovations in economics, finance, technology, and policy that rethink the way we live, work, spend, save, and invest. The pandemic has changed so many things in our day-to-day lives. A big one for a lot of people is no longer going to the office every day. But it's not just a change for people. It's an economic shock for the cities that have seen their business districts empty out. This week, we're talking about some new ways cities can reinvent themselves. New York City was hit hard by the pandemic in the spring of 2020. Two years later, a lot of commercial real estate is still vacant. We may not get all the way back to where we were before the pandemic. We talked with Edith Su Chen, executive director of the New York City Department of City Planning, about what changes and even opportunities that might create for the city. Office usage is about 40 to 45 percent of where we were before the pandemic. We have to do more to boost those numbers. That's, that's where we're at right now. Su Chen's work deals with a lot of central business districts, or CBDs. In a place like New York, there's more than one. She says that even though office usage is down, these areas remain very critical to the health of the city. One effect of the pandemic has been to strengthen local business communities and to decentralize them. Su Chen says people often think of big central districts such as New York City's Midtown or Lower Manhattan, but there are other boroughs with strong business districts as well. We also have, you know, really important central business districts in the other boroughs, certainly downtown Brooklyn, Long Island City. We have, you know, emerging downtowns in all five boroughs. They're all making their mark and they're getting stronger. And this is really exciting because, you know, having these job centers across the city really makes the city much more accessible. It makes it more inclusive. It makes it more diverse and interesting. An office portfolio is not too different from an investment portfolio. You want to have a diversity of offerings. And it's just fabulous that we're seeing growth across the city. We're seeing a shift. It's not just financial services, legal services, real estate, but we're also seeing cultural and educational institutions. We're seeing nonprofits. We're seeing tech and design. That's really exciting to mix it up. Another potential change is an increase of mixed use space. That is, buildings and neighborhoods that blend the commercial and the residential. Well, we we love mixed use. We think it really contributes to a really dynamic and much more interesting place to live, work, and play. There's over 300 million square feet of office space in Manhattan that is already allowed to convert to housing. And the market hasn't converted it to housing. You know, maybe we'll see an uptick. You know, I suspect we will. But, you know, we are taking cues also from the market. We have provided this opportunity to the market for decades. One concern Su Chen has is preserving enough office space should the demand suddenly increase. She says it's important for the city to stay flexible. What we really want to concentrate it is at transit hubs. 
It just makes a lot of sense to put our job centers at major transit hubs. So yeah, we love mixed uses, but at transit hubs, such as the Grand Central, such as the Penn Stations, we do want to put our thumb on the scale towards commercial and office and jobs. We can pull in from a much bigger pool of workers. New York's city planners want to make it easier to commute to work, but they also are encouraging people to work close to home. A concept that's grown popular in recent urban planning thinking is the 15-minute neighborhood. That's the idea that your needs, a good school, transportation, a place to buy fresh food and a park, are all within a walkable 15-minute radius from where you live. New Yorkers are innovating the city and they are creating 15-minute communities. They are creating the 15-minute, you know, local bustling job center where they also live and work and play. Su Chen has seen creative ventures spring up in vacant spaces that used to be stores or offices. We've seen retail space converted to street galleries. We've seen educational, cultural, medical institutions going into traditional office spaces. Some of it requires retrofitting, some of it doesn't. It's really important that we're, we're open, that we have a zoning code you know, that is open to uses that are you know, compatible. And it's great to see these kinds of users go into an office space where you wouldn't expect a school or an art gallery or a meditation center. You know, we are seeing, seeing all sorts of new uses. Some housing advocates and land use lawyers say complicated regulations and approvals make office to apartment conversions difficult. And some commercial landlords would rather hang on to empty space than accept generally lower residential rents. It's not just a pandemic that can alter a city. When new industries take hold in an area, that can be another starting point for transformation. That's what happened in Austin, Texas, when the tech industry moved in. I would say that it is headed in a, in a direction of being a very different feeling city. Michael Agresta writes for Texas Monthly. He says Austin, his home, has gone through several cultural reinventions. In the 50s, Willie Nelson moved to town, making it a home for cowboys and country music. In the late 80s, the music show South by Southwest drew new bands. Later, it morphed into a film festival and then a technology conference. That's where, in 2007, Twitter first took off. There's certainly a sense that a lot of the people who moved to Austin just because they wanted to move to Austin got their first taste of it via South by Southwest and thought, wow, this is such a cool city. Why not give that one a shot? The mystique is captured in Richard Linklater's movie Slacker, which you know shows these young people just sort of bouncing around, having cool conversations and living their lives without much thought about career, how they're going to make money. What do you do to earn a living? You mean work? To hell with the kind of work you have to do to earn a living. All it does is fill the bellies of the pigs who exploit us. Which is very different from today's Austin, where how you make money has to be one of your first thoughts, because cost-of-living situation. Oracle, Tesla, Google, Amazon, and Apple have all either moved to or planned major expansions there. The large infusion of tech money that flooded the city recently might have been inspired by Austin's reputation as a cool place to live. Or it might have been the corporate tax incentives. Add it all up, and the momentum of Austin's expansion seemed to build on itself. There is increasingly a confidence that when talent moves here for a job, there's now a confidence that there'll be another job if that doesn't work out. So it's just this, as, as things get bigger, 
it becomes more attractive in general. Agresta says the changes to the city since the influx of Silicon Valley money have been dramatic. It's really massive. The skyline speaks to it. You know, there were a few tall buildings when I moved here and, you know, we, we've been adding to the skyline, especially in the past few years at a very rapid pace. So, you know, the scale of building also outside of downtown is, is remarkable. Really feel a great change in a lot of neighborhoods that also extends to gentrification and changing the types of businesses and cultures that exist in the various neighborhoods. That growth has made life harder in Austin for some people. A much larger segment of the population is concerned about their ability to afford rent and to ever buy a house. And uh, people who have bought houses are suddenly, you know, much wealthier on paper than they expected to be. People who got in before this this really big housing boom of the past few years, then salaries are are up, especially in the tech industry. People who work for the state, the university might see themselves, you know, on the lower end of a, of a widening gulf. Big changes in an urban environment can pose problems, but they can also open a door to innovation. Coming up, a couple of ways to reimagine our downtowns. That's after the break. This message comes from Viking committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. Welcome back to the Best New Ideas in Money. Before the break, we heard about recent transformations to business districts in New York and Austin. What are some other possibilities for change and renewal? Um, giving it's a, it's a Swedish word that means the way a space feels around you, you know, that feeling that a space gives you. There's no English word for that. Karin Liljegren is the founder of Omgivning. It's an architecture and interiors firm that specializes in the adaptive reuse of buildings. What's happening right now, for example, in downtown LA is kind of an exodus from office spaces. The other thing we're really experiencing is an enormous lack of ground floor activation because there's so many empty ground floor stores, restaurants, bars that have gone out of business. And even some of that was prior to the pandemic. And obviously there's a lot of factors that relay into that. But to me, that those are the two biggest issues in downtown center areas, and that's really across the country. I think that the opportunities, the main one I want to talk about today is converting office buildings to residential. Liljegren has had the chance to do a lot of this kind of work. Los Angeles has worked on its zoning to make adaptive reuse easier. That is, changing the regulations for buildings to go from one use to another. They're making the process faster and less expensive. There's a lot of cities that don't have any mechanism to encourage that conversion of office to housing because it is pretty complicated from a building code and sometimes a zoning code perspective, and it can be very expensive. The opportunity also is how reusing these buildings can help us combat climate change. 
you know, because reusing a building is is the most sustainable thing you can do when you're talking about construction and, and our industry. And also it's a great way to create housing, which is obviously a, a, a huge deal. Last year, California's Governor Gavin Newsom signed 27 housing bills and created a new state agency to oversee their execution. The state of California has created a mandate of a number of units that every city has to bring in. LA's is over 500,000 in the next eight years. So we got to do everything we, you know, every way we can get the units. <laughs> How does Lil Jagrin decide whether a vacant commercial building could become a great home? We're getting pretty good at doing early assessments to understand, you know, what does this building want to be? And then as, as architects, we also really focus on, again, how do you add value to the building? Or is there um, a way to add an additional floor on top of the roof to help, you know, bring in more leasable square footage, which would help offset some of these costs? Are there underutilized areas of the building? Does the basement have some really cool historic fabric that would make a great bar? And then... The other thing too is from a, I think a more social and cultural value perspective as well, like how is it working with the neighborhood? How is the neighborhood changing and how does this fit in and what would be the demographic? So looking at it high level, but holistically. Lil Jagrin says you'd be surprised how many office buildings make great residential conversions. I think people always see, oh, you have to have a a skinny, tall, maybe old historic building to convert to residential, and that just makes the most sense. Because if it's skinny, then you have more light and ventilation. But there are a lot of buildings that you might look at and not say, oh yeah, that wants to be residential, that there are so many ways to bring the light in, to bring the ventilation in. Maybe one building has a very large floor plate, but it's less expensive to do the actual conversion. So that can allow other, other things to create a, a better residential experience. Like Edith Suchen, the New York City planner, Lil Jagrin thinks flexibility is key. The most important thing that cities can do and buildings can do is to really look at every space, every building, every neighborhood as multi-use, mixed-use, integrated, because that also allows maximum flexibility of how things might change again in the future, <laughs> you know, or what I need today versus what I might need tomorrow. So I think that the best way for residential and commercial neighborhoods to grow is to really meld more together. So yeah, I think we really need to open our, our minds to all the different options that they can be. One option that might not be front of mind, a vertical urban farm. These are farms built in the middle of cities using new or existing buildings. So when you walk into a vertical farm, it's a really exciting experience. It doesn't look like farming as you know it. Nona Yahia is an architect turned urban farmer in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. She co-founded Vertical Harvest Farms in the heart of the business district. Number one, it's indoors. Number two, you know, the lighting is something that's truly uh, novel and really spectacular to be able to experience. But I think the most exciting thing is the innovation that, that you see. Most vertical farms are stacking, think about a library stack, but think about a library stack that is filled with lush greenery. 
Yahia was inspired to start designing vertical farms in part as a reaction to some scary climate predictions and in part as a way to bring fresh food to urban centers. One of the reasons that we became vertical farmers is we were keenly aware of the UN warning that the world must produce 70% more food by the middle of the century. So that's not just about our grandkids and our kids, this is about our lifetimes. Vertical farming has the potential to be hyper-local, to be able to serve the communities in which these farms sit, and to be able to address food insecurity in our communities across the nation. All the growing is done indoors under very controlled conditions. Vertical farming is, is typically soilless because we need to be able to reduce the weight. So we're able to deliver the nutrients to the roots of the plants that we grow through water. In our farm, these are the most pampered plants you'll ever meet, right? They're not worried about drought. They're not worried about insects. They are in a controlled environment and they get all the nutrients that they need to grow. That water gets recirculated, adding another layer of green to the process. Critics of vertical farming say they're expensive to set up, and if they're not solar-powered, there will be high energy costs, too. Yahya started her career as an architect. Many urban farms are set up in existing buildings, but Yahya prefers to build from the ground up. Architects, by nature, are problem solvers. So we started looking at where could we put this facility. We knew it had to be indoors. We knew it had to be at a scale that mattered. And so the town of Jackson had put out a request for proposals for a small piece of property that measured 30 feet wide by 150 feet long. But I think that's where we really said, well, what do we really want to do? We want to grow as much food as possible. We want to employ as many people as possible. We want to do it year round. And that's how we became vertical farmers. And what's exciting is that vertical farming is the fastest growing industry in agriculture today. And so what we've done is show that we can bolster the local food economy at scale in one of the most severe environments in the United States. The farm is right in the center of Jackson Hole, built along the south side of its downtown parking structure. People are often surprised by the tall windows and towers of plants. It is really important for us that the farm be accessible to public transportation so that anyone can work there. It is really important that we are delivering our food to our customers within a short range so that you know we deliver our food at the peak of its nutritional and taste value. So being in the heart of the urban center is core to our mission. Well, we may not get all the way back to where we were before the pandemic, maybe, but do we think that ECBDs are hugely important and will remain extremely attractive and critical to the city? Absolutely, yes. That solution could be many things, a vertical farm, new available residential space, or the kind of walkable, mixed-use neighborhoods that executive planning director Edith Suchen envisions for New York. The key to New York City's recovery is, is what has always made it successful, and that is our openness to change. So it's more than just acknowledging that there are new ways of working and doing business, but it's also that um, we're embracing it
Thanks for listening to The Best New Ideas in Money. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you heard, please leave us a rating or review. And if you have ideas for future episodes, drop us a line at bestnewideasinmoney at marketwatch.com. Thanks to Edith Suchen, Michael Agresta, Karen Liljegren, Nona Yahia, and Rebecca Weintraub. To learn more about how downtowns are reinventing themselves, head to marketwatch.com. I'm Stephanie Kelton. And I'm Charles Passy. The Best New Ideas in Money is a podcast for MarketWatch produced by Best Case Studios. Suzanne Myers is our producer. Our associate producer is Hannah Leibowitz-Lockard. The executive producer for Best Case Studios is Adam Pincus. For MarketWatch, Melissa Haggerty is the executive producer, and the producers are Meta Lutzhoft and Katie Ferguson, who also mix this episode. Jeremy Binks is our news editor. The Best New Ideas in Money theme was composed by Sam Retzer. Stephanie Kelton is an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University and not part of the MarketWatch newsroom. We'll be back next week with another new idea.